1: Welcome to the ID10T podcast number 1008. Hey, check out ID10T.com. There's uh, some ID10T merch there that helps support the podcast. And also, uh, we're going to have some licensed stuff coming soon. And I think we're going to open a little vintage shop in there. Um, cause I have a lot of vintage teas <laughs> and I want to share some of them and also pull some, uh, some other ones in too. So just keep checking back regu- regularly and also, uh, tour dates are up there as well. I'll be in Dallas in late July and then in, uh, Raleigh, North Carolina at the beginning of, uh, at the beginning of August and then some other dates, uh, up in the fall. So go there. Thank you. Also, let's, uh, talk about the community cork board. Mikhail Farrar writes, after years of procrastinating, uh, a.k.a. sitting on the couch playing Xbox, I've written my first book. It's called Rangool, and it's a supernatural thriller murder mystery with page-turning suspense that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Warning, it's a very adult book, so no one under 13, please. Uh, It's available on Amazon.com. Just search my name under Rangool. Since it's the only thing on Amazon called Rangool, R-A-N-G-O-U-L, it's easy to find. And Elliot writes, I'm writing in to let you know about a comics project we've launched on Kickstarter called the Paper Cuts Comic Anthology and includes a mix of 13 indie comics from Memphis artists, oh, I'm so on board this, crawling from the smoldering husk of the Memphis College of Arts Comics Department. So as a tribute, as a pure project of love, we're building this anthology to tell stories we want to tell. There's comics about the Wicked Witch of the Wild West, fast food burger cults, mammoth hunts, supermarket superheroes, professional wrestling, and country diners, and all kinds of other stuff. You can find it at Paper Cuts Comics com or by searching Paper Cuts Comics Anthology on Kickstarter. Fantastic. Um, this episode of the podcast is my old friend Adam Savage, who was on one of the first podcasts we ever did and has been on throughout the years. And, of course, is someone that I idolize because he's not only an inspiring creative force, but he knows how to make shit <laughs> with his hands, which is a crazy concept. But he's just a good guy. You know, Adam has uh, a new show called Savage Builds, which is Friday nights on Discovery at 10 p.m. And then it re-airs on the Science Channel. And and you can find him online, you know, his tested show, uh, his Instagram. But uh, I just have all the love in the world for this man, and, uh, and I'm so glad he was able to, to come back on the podcast. So check out that. He also had a book that came out a few months ago, um, uh, and uh, that's it. This is the ID10T Podcast number 1008 with the makery goodness of Mr. Adam Savage. Initiating ID10T
0: protocol.
1: From the guy in Oregon. Oh, you know this
2: Trumpet Labs? I do, Your these Trumpet Labs? So do you know the, the band the Milk Carton Kids? No. They play at Largo all the time. They did all the music for Inside Blue and Davis.
1: Oh, gotcha.
2: Um, and there are a couple of Troubadours, and they trap their entire road package is one of these. All of these? Just one. And they they use two acoustic guitars and they place this at the apex between their voices and the guitars. They sound
1: amazing. Hey Deb, can you grab a couple of waters? Yeah.
2: Thank you. Do you know about how this – I'm sorry. No, go ahead, go, ahead, go ahead. How this guy puts these together, he buys these apparently cheap Chinese cardioid mm-hmm. mics, yeah. which are like a fifth of what a really good one costs. Yeah. And what he finds is about one in three fail. But the other two are just as good as high-end ones.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so you're really... It's just a little bit of a roulette game. It's
2: yeah, like, so he goes through this QC process where he gets the ones to fail to fail and then he uses the other ones. Oh, that's
1: fantastic. I know. That's fantastic. I'm so glad that you are here. Uh, I miss seeing you. I have not seen and you in quite a long, long. time. And, uh, and, and as far as the podcast goes, you are really part of podcast history like our podcast history right. in particular thanks deb because um you know the first you the very first live show we ever did at Largo in 2010 was you
2: and you, so you, 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 I mean, it's such an important moment in my life because that was the first time I ever tried to stand up in front of a crowd. Oh my and God! Your that's great. insistence and encouragement, and it went great. It went so good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, even the, the the weird thing about that though is because I remember you were doing some material about your sons. So you referred to as thing one and thing two. Yep. And then that was eight years ago. Like yeah. now they're f- they're like f- fucking
2: grown. They're humans. Yeah. Uh, in fact, one of them um, worked for me on my show, Savage Builds, oh and was my belay when I was flying as Iron Man. Oh my god! And so at a certain point, he he's you know he doesn't advertise that he's my kid. So there's this point at which he saved my life. Right? Like I lost an engine and I fell, and he like caught me before I hit the deck. And when I stood up again, I turned to him and I said, "Thanks, handsome." <laughs> And this PA, who he was working with, turned to him and said, why did the boss just call
1: you handsome? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He's my dad. He's my dad. All right. (laughs) Okay, I guess that's all right. That's all right. I mean, is it, was, were you, well, he's not a kid anymore, though, so, because I know for a long time, Anyone who is famous who have kids, you want to kind of protect their identity so people don't get weird. But now they're um, adult humans. You know, we ended up – we shot a piece to camera where I explained that
2: he was my son Mm -hmm. and I named him on the show. We decided not to cut it into the episode. Oh, really? Yeah. I I, I tweeted that that was my kid. Yeah. I still want them to have their privacy. Sure. I still want them to – because it's – you know – it can be confusing. I remember my wife, when we first got together, when we first started dating, she was working for a boss. And she noticed that his attitude – her toward the boss she'd worked for for like two years, that his attitude toward her changed when she uh, – ah, do not disturb. Her, His attitude towards her changed when he found out she was dating me. Oh, that's so weird. Right? Like that, that's, That weird social navigation that people do, it's it's peculiar. So I want them to have their own experience of the world rather than always filtered through me.
1: Or at least being able to choose whether or not they want that kind of a life. Exactly. But that show was so much fun. And in the audience... Was Craig Ferguson, who had told
2: me, who's a fan of MythBusters, and had said, "Oh,
1: if you do stand up, I'll come out and see it." And yeah, I was like, "Sure," like that's ever going to happen? And then he did. He did, and then we became friends. After he came back, said, "He was like, this is fucking great. I'd love to do it. You should come on my show." And then I started going on his show and doing the mail segments, and and we were so it was it was a very significant episode because it also established. It was the first time I thought, "Oh, this." Kind of podcast genre Like this platform It doesn't just have to be in a studio Like you could do a live show Let's experiment with that And we started doing live shows after that And it totally changed Like oh it can be anything you want it to be So it was sort of a fun It was sort of a fun you know version of a of a savage build with a with a with a media platform so well, that was a very fun episode and
2: then the second time we did that show together which was again at Largo where Craig was your main guest yeah yeah um, and you had the amazing and incredible Sarah Watkins come play yep. and that's when I met and became friends with her Yep. and again the, this cascaded into all these other areas of my life
1: I mean it's so like that it's so funny to see what the Venn diagram were like, like the crossover of comedy science television <laughs> music you know it's just like Indeed. all these things sort of uh come together because Sarah's great and her husband is great oh like they're God. just such great people and so like Largo is just a magnet
2: for I love that place
1: no matter what types of stuff Largo puts up there's su- there's just like a weird common cultural thread yep. whether it's music you know even if it's bluegrass or more uh, rock stuff or comedy or whatever it is
2: and, the, and the, the backstage at Largo fulfills my childhood dreams of what I hoped backstages
1: would look like <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> it almost feels a little bit especially if you're doing a show where there's sketches it feels like vaudeville oh it does where it's like oh there's someone with holding the mandolin and someone else is putting a duck mask on well I used to a, do
2: Thrilling Adventure Hour with yes Lacker that's exactly right and I'd be there and over here would be Josh Molina and there's John Hamm and they're yeah, about to put on the like and Phillips. Go, and, yes and, yeah. exactly Padgett Bruce Everyone's getting into character and dressed up. Yeah, but but like when you travel around the country and you perform in different theaters, you really get to see. As someone pointed out to me, like you visit an old Fox theater. Yeah, and you learn what people thought of performers back in those days because the dressing rooms were the smallest rooms in the theater. <laughs> they were shit holes, like doing the old Letterman show, right? Yeah. Where the dressing room was like this big. Yeah, shit in that bucket. Yeah, exactly. And uh, here's a
1: corn nut. Exactly. One corn nut. And
2: then you do, you know, I've played in uh, other places, yeah, where it's always cinder block, mm-hmm. right? Like it's the dressing room, it all just feels like a prison complex. Yep, yep. But the Largo with the Christmas lights and the, 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 the warmth of that backstage, I always feel at home back there.
1: It's a good experience. Yeah, it's a really good experience. I also,
2: that first night, um, my wife and I also ran into Martin Starr. Oh, yeah. At Largo that night. And we had the experience of that spontaneous experience you have where you love someone's work and you see them and you go, oh, hey, yeah. as if you know them and they kind of have to navigate this. We, we didn't re- like, we we were very young at that point. We didn't quite realize, like, yeah. And meeting Martin Starr is actually exactly what you'd expect meeting Martin Starr
1: to be like. Oh, hey. He's a little suspicious of you. And- yes. <laughs> and then ultimately, like, such a nice guy. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's the, cro- the the crossover that you specifically have, too, because that, you know, Mythbusters and then ultimately the Mage series and ultimately Savage Builds, everything that you do, you, It 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 is the center of this pinwheel of all of these different people and disciplines and ideas and stuff and you couldn't have possibly you know so many years ago when you started that you was like oh we're just nerds making props and but to think of like all these different people from different walks of life who would kind of land and Mythbusters and you would ultimately be like the center of it is is a pretty surreal.
2: It was far out it, it, and I think the first time I started to realize that weird cultural nexus we were occupying was when we went to Comic-Con and I realized reality shows don't go to Comic-Con. <laughs> I didn't tell her tried it once and they were like that was fine. <laughs> but that's not, there's not really a space. We were out on this little cultural promontory of mm-hmm. like what is a science show doing at Comic-Con but it felt really right and I found such an incredible community there uh, and again you're right it's like it's from it. here's a question what is the intersection between cons and utilikilts?
1: I don't know what it is but it's clearly there <laughs> well you know like listen Nerds uh, can nerds tend to be practical, <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yes, It's sort of true. that. It's sort of that. You know, Einstein, Seth Brundle thing. I have five of the same outfit, and I don't ever have <laughs> to expend any energy. Exactly. to What I'm gonna and so the Utilikilt, I imagine because there's crossover with. The maker community there's crossover with the Renaissance Fair community there's crossover and there is something that's very practical. I mean, oh, I, I have it makes, made a kilt and I've worn a kilt and they're very comfortable. They're very they're very comfortable, you know, yeah. especially if you're walking around in a hot convention all day Completely. and you know you need to you need to air condition <laughs> the the things. I
2: wore a I wore a kilt when I worked at Industrial Light and Magic. Uh, They had a famous Christmas party that was, you know, you could dress up really, you could dress up as much as you wanted for it. So I decided one year to do a full Scotsman's Prince Charlie jacket with a full kilt. I couldn't afford a kilt. They're expensive because there's a ton of material in them. Yes. So I made one. (laughs) <laughs> and I, I, I wore it it was my family tartan and I wore it to uh, uh, to the ILM Christmas party and someone ran up to my boss and said you gotta see Adam he's dressed in a kilt my boss goes wow does he look like Braveheart and they <laughs> went nah nah <laughs> Like
1: Austin Powers. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, listen, it's, you know, when you're ultra white people like we are, <laughs> the
2: kilt can be very revealing. Well, so I one of my co-workers in the camera department was a Scotsman who had told me about the right way to wear the skein and all the different things. And the next day or the next Monday morning, he said, how did wearing the kilt at the party go? And I said, it went great. You didn't tell me that my friend's drunken wives would pick up the edge of my kilt to see what I was wearing underneath. (laughs) And he goes, oh, I didn't tell you about that part? Yeah, that happens every time. What do you wear underneath? Is it just briefs or is it boxes? You wear nothing. If you do it correctly, you are freeballing it. But see, that feel. (laughs)
1: That feels <laughs> dangerous. Oh, it feels dangerous, but also awesome. But especially because guys aren't used to having to be conscious of no, that no. area. Yeah, and we often sit with our legs akimbo. Well, or... that's why.
2: A, I mean, a kilt has like ten yards. Some spectacular number of yardage in a kilt because of all the pleats. So it, it, you could sit spread legged in the kilt. So you're will... not just teabagging the back no, of an Uber. No, like, no, you, no. Do, do, you, do you sit on the? You back, sit on the kilt on yeah. the back of the you kilt. You
1: don't undo the kilt and
2: plant your naked bottom okay, on someone's Okay, so you're chair. essentially
1: just you're essentially just ball stamping the back of your kilt <laughs> yes, every exactly. time you sit down. Okay, that's a good note. It's yeah. just good to know. It's just good to know that that's the case. But it, <laughs> I do I've thought about it, you know I, I do believe that there is some Scottish heritage in the Hardwick, I know actually there's Scottish heritage in the Hardwick family mm-hmm, tree mm-hmm. and so, uh, you know, it wouldn't be you know, I don't think it would be considered cultural appropriation to wear a kilt because it is and uh but I just don't know if I I'm just not sure it's in my wheelhouse. It's
2: really lovely. I, I found it a delightful thing to wear. I still have the whole outfit.
1: You should release a line of kilts, just savage kilts.
2: <laughs> well, so my, my 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 the Scottish side of my family are Monroes. Um and when you, you you have a name and you know it goes back, you go and look up the tartan and it's a pretty straightforward uh, red tartan. Um and then there's often um there was often a motto and the Monroe motto you like hope it's gonna be great like there be dragons or something exciting <laughs> um, but no I was born in the year of the sheep fantastic uh, and in my, my our motto is dread God Hmm. that's very that's very uh, is that would that be Catholic I, I and here is the limit of my knowledge no I have no idea <laughs> <laughs> I have the slightest idea uh, do you dread God I, I, I if there was one <laughs> I'm certain I would dread him. I can't know. So what I call myself is a New... I'm a New Testament agnostic.
1: You know, what's really funny is is the idea is, like, if you're sent back in time, and they're like, dread God, and you're like, well, the definition and construct of that, if we are to assume... We wouldn't possibly. We wouldn't know that there was a god to dread yet. And then they, would, by that point, they would probably just burn you as a heretic. Right, I would exactly. imagine. Exactly. You'd be like, I'd like to make a. Where do you yeah. fall in the time travel thing in terms <laughs> of like? Because pe- you know, th- like people just think about time travel so cavalierly. Like, oh, you go back in time, and you you got to be careful not to change anything, and you got to do this, and you got to that. But does anyone? I never hear anyone talk about how number one. Uh, your gut flora would be totally thrown out. You'd first of all be vomiting and shitting for the first few days oh because God, yeah. you would, the smells you would not be accustomed to. No, Much stinkier appalled. time. Yeah. And, awful. and also the the, the the water, the food, like you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be adjusted to the, you'd, you'd get sick and die, I think within three days. Well, here's a
2: wonderful example that sort of talks about that because it's, it's a really, really good point. Um, you cannot make San Francisco sourdough bread anywhere but San Francisco. Because if you tried to take the yeast starter for San Francisco sourdough to, let's say Denver, Colorado, you'd probably get two or three loaves out of it before the local fa- flora took over,
1: yeah, because I mean, they it have it like weed
2: it's location specific, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> weed and pine cone. that's right. <laughs> Uh, it, 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 so yeah, these things would be very, very localized. You're totally right about that. Will Wheaton thinks he's cracked the
1: sourdough code. Really? Well, he's he's become a bread maker. Oh! And then we, I, I did not I know saw about that. A couple this. days ago, and he was like, "I think I cracked the sourdough code. I think I cracked it. <laughs> I had a couple of batches. It didn't work, but then I think I cracked it. Oh! Yeah. So I don't know. Will thinks he may have cracked it outside of San Francisco yeah. but you're right the local the local floor will always Well so
2: specific, I mean then there are other sourdough starters um the the other thing though that I like to think about time travel and because uh, I definitely agree with you it would stink and yeah. there's a movie um Peter Greenaway's The Draftsman's Contract Okay. It's a weird wonderful movie but it's the only movie from that period like 16th 17th century where you could really see that everyone
0: stunk. <laughs>
1: Like, the edges of all their frills were gray. Yeah, their, ba- like, their benchmark stink w- is the worst smell, yeah. I would imagine. It would probably be like, yeah, two 17-year-olds' dorm rooms kind of stink on your average human. And the second they, like, scooped a deer leg out of the dirt, you know, out of the cold dirt, <laughs> and just threw it on a fire, you- like, you would never... It. I mean, we watch Naked and Afraid a lot, yeah. And even that just feels like, how are these people not shitting their guts out right. all the time, right? Right. And also, how much we are not, uh, evol- We we have we have devolved, yeah, from being animals into complete creatures of comfort. We would not really know how to survive if we had to.
2: But on the other hand, though, counterpoint, um, there's a couple of great books that I read in the last couple of years. Mary Beard's SPQR, which is kind of a wonderful tight. Uh, history of Rome from, like, 500 B.C. to 200 A.D. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's a book called the, A Day in the Life of Rome. And in both of those cases, as I read about ancient Rome, I feel like if you were zapped back to on onto a street 2,000 years ago, the most surprising thing would be
1: that it's all super familiar. Well, and, you know, it's so funny you say that because we just went to Italy and we went to Herculaneum, which is the sister city to Pompeii. Oh, okay. So Herculaneum was a much smaller – Herculaneum was sort of the Malibu of the day. It was a small <laughs> – Wealthy beach community. Okay, and it's really fascinating to hear because when Vesuvius erupted, um, uh, Pompeii was essentially flash fried in hot ash. So right. that's where you have all those people yeah. who were like, Bleh, you yeah. know, and then they yeah. just turn into like taco shells. Um, in Herculaneum, because of their location, the the volcano essentially created a weather a weather pattern, and rather than being flash fried by hot ash, they were buried in uh, white hot mud oh so there God. was like a tsunami of hot <sighs> mud so they uh, they were all basically cooked to death as, as opposed to fried they were bo- boiled by hot mud as opposed oh to fried God. so in the maybe the 1700s they began excavating it and, uh, and so it's just a whole town that's excavated and it, what you said is exactly right they there were blocks there were streets there were street signs you can see like you know some of the insides of the of the homes are are still intact so yeah. you can see like these gorgeous frescoes and the tile on the floor they had plumbing they had public fountains there were um lunch counters on every corner where right. they just had these urns these giant urns on a counter and the like, amphora the, the, yeah, the like yeah, yeah like apothecaries like apothe <laughs> like shop signs it was very much exactly like you know just a little less technological and yeah. of course all the plumbing pipes were lead right. but you know <laughs> oh, they- also if you were poor you lived on the high floors oh interesting because that's you uh,
2: where you lived was based on how quickly you could escape your building if it was burning <laughs> so the rich people lived on the ground floor <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, that sort of reverse. Right. <laughs> yeah, now the rich people like to be up high. But it is but it is you're right. There it it's definitely you know in cultures that uh that were a little more evolved, but if you were just dropped into the to to the middle ages or something you know you absolutely just feel somewhere
2: like. in the middle Europe in 16, 1470, fourteen seventy you'd probably feel just like China and you know you'd be there's all these places where it would be surpassingly primitive
1: but i don't i don't I don't think i I think that if I were to go back in time the couple of things I would probably bring pepto like you'd <laughs> want to bring something because diarrhea could oh, kill yeah. you
2: totally uh it has killed it, I remember looking up a number at one point of how many pe- diarrhea
1: has killed so many people over the course of history. Chappelle used to have an amazing bit about diarrhea, and just about <laughs> like going like there was a time where you just get diarrhea and like uh, you just you're not going to make it if you got diarrhea you you don't survive it. I've been thinking about <laughs> I've been thinking about diarrhea recently, and it's,
2: beca- <laughs> and it's because it's because Odwalla no longer seems to sell their super protein drink they're old super protein like one of their first smoothie protein drinks they sell a vanilla super protein which i love but i have to admit tastes exactly like kale pectin <laughs> And so
1: clearly I'm kind of recreationally reliving my childhood by drinking this stuff. <laughs> is it me or does every Russian word look like the word Kaopecte? I totally agree with that. Do you know that. what I mean? No, no that was weird? Chernobyl my, was Kaopecte, Department of Kaopecte. My stupid American eyes just see the word Kaopecte with like a letter that's reversed. Totally. But it 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 is – it's little things that we sort of – that we take for granted because we are so spoiled now that – you know, if you think, because I always try to figure out, like, what 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 would you bring if you were on Naked and Afraid? Like, what would because I do you prob- get to bring something? You I get to bring a thing, a thing. They usually give you a flint so you can start a fire. Do they give you a pers- knife? Some a well, person can bring a you that can be your thing. Yeah, or you can bring a mosquito net. Does I, anyone bring a knife that's also got a chainsaw at the other end? <laughs> It's just like a total utility where it's like you can pull a tent out of it and then it's a right. clothes hanger. As
2: long as you can hold it off the ground for yeah. a minute. Yeah. It's you the
1: one thing, it. you guys. It's the one fucking thing. You just try to build this mega...
2: It's the Jamie Heideman cheat index. Of, <laughs> like, well, how can I operate specifically under the exact words you used
1: I, I I really feel like I would pay maybe seven figures to watch you and Jamie go on naked and afraid together just to see <laughs> just oh my god to see. I almost just did a spit take based on that that is information I don't want the hand of our mustache by the way uh may count as clothing I'm not 100 percent sure that may you're not naked. You're not. You got that utila kilt on your face.
2: Maybe he shaves down there in the handlebar (laughs) in order to match. So from a distance, he looks like I don't know.
1: uh, (laughs) Quotation marks. A beret on your junk counts as clothes. I'm sorry. You can't wear a can't wear a beret down there. Can't wear a beret down there. But I I, I just I I I do often feel dwarfed by the idea that most of us have no real hands-on skills. Which is what you specialize in. Yes. And... You know, a lot of times when I'm doing stand-up at shows, I'll ask people, like, what job do you have? Do you think that would help you in the apocalypse? And most people's jobs, the answer is no. Right. (laughs) No. You know, IT, no. Marketing, no. You know. Yeah. People who work in construction, people who, like, plumbers, like, okay, well, you're like the fucking president of the apocalypse with that skill set. So what types of skills should people cultivate to feel like they could mildly survive an apocalypse? Well,
2: so here's the thing. I'm about to make you feel great if you were feeling a little less than your hand skills because one of the things I like to say is that the gateway drug for me into learning how to make all sorts of different things and solve different problems was theater. Mm-hmm. The theater's a great gateway drug for making because there's a there's a low threshold to entry. Your high school drama club is just looking for people. That's where I found my people. Uh, and then when I started working professionally in theater, I mean, you know, you had every – every you ran the gamut from the opera house where it was a significant union gig to these tiny black box theaters run by a bunch of people who are still tripping from last night. Yeah. And in that, I came to understand – and it, when, it, when film showed up, I took the film job because it doubled my income because right. theater couldn't pay the rent. But I have always held an abiding love for theater as what I point out. It is the first art form that would survive an apocalypse intact. <laughs> because when, with whatever 200 people were left in L.A., when we all gathered together, we'd be telling stories, and then we'd be performing those stories for each other because that's what humans do. Right. And that's a really important and necessary human
1: need. Although... Even though, as builders in the theater, you're just building fake things. You're building the fronts of things. <laughs> you're not building the full thing. No, but you're unpacking the narratives of our
2: hearts. So That's I'm true. sure
1: you're going to be asked to do a few jokes in the apocalypse. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> they're going to need comedy in the apocalypse. You, you know, they're going to need they're going to need some sort. You know, it's a, when the world becomes gallows humor, you really. Yeah. Do... How many people still have all their limbs? Show of hands. Oh, oh sorry. <laughs> no show of hands. <laughs> uh, but I, but I also. Uh, I, my wife ordered all this survival stuff. Oh, yeah. You know, so we had, like, you know, she's like, okay, so, you know, this is all good for, like, 50 years. <laughs> and she has it all organized. So. so this is something that I want because, you know,
2: I, yeah, I start to worry about our culture and our civilization right now. I'm very worried in significant ways. And one of the things I've been thinking about is... <clears throat> In the in a Gilead like collapse of our economy, mm-hmm. like let's say someone took over the banks, like what are what is going to be the important thing? I've got a shop full of tools, so I don't have to worry about that. But do I want six weeks worth of food, or crates and crates of
1: chocolate bars, <laughs> or your Iron Man suit, or my
2: Iron Man suit? For Which it instance. could be
1: the types of things that people are bartering with in the in the apocalypse. You could sort of make you could make things. You could yep, make a yep. currency.
2: I just I remember a friend of mine used to go to the Rainbow Family Gatherings, which is mm-hmm. sort of I guess a precursor spiritually to Burning Man. Okay, so this would be groups of people that would gather informally in national parks around the country yeah. a few times a year, and it was all barter based, just like Burning Man. And he said that chocolate bars were like what would make you kingpin at the <laughs> at the at the Rainbow Family <laughs> Gatherings. So be like on the by by week two, a chocolate bar was worth like twenty five dollars.
1: Oh yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Just a little bit of just. Some type of pleasure that's reminiscent of the old world. Well, when you, like mean, you read about the on-
2: Vichy, Vichy collab- you know, you read about like the collaborators in France during World War II and like the tiny comforts that they would right. find solace in. Yeah. I hate that I'm thinking on, <laughs> on levels like that about how well, to
1: survive. You know, it's always just good to tuck it in the back of your brain. We don't know. You know, we don't know.
2: A million years ago, I had this crush on this girl. And uh, it was never reciprocated, but um, I did get one lovely encomium from her. She was lying in bed late at night with her boyfriend, and they were in their pillow talk, just as 25-year-olds might do. He was like, if there was a huge earthquake or a nuclear attack, would you come to my house? (laughs) And she said, hell no, I'm going to savages.
1: (laughs) (laughs) At least she was being honest. (laughs) At least she was being honest. I really thought you were going a different way with that. I'm, I'm so embarrassed that I'm going to admit this. This <laughs> stupidest joke, that. but it just popped into my head when you said, a million years ago, I had a crush on a girl. She was uh, Australopithecus average. <laughs> I really thought there was going to be an anthropology joke nice. in there somewhere. Yeah. She was only four foot one. She was four foot one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not fully erect yet, but there was promise you oh know I'm not gonna but who am I to judge who am I to judge you are reminding me of the greatest
2: dirty joke I have heard in a long time okay and it's uh, Jimmy Carr okay of course the best oh my god and I realized that what's beautiful about this joke it is it is severely dirty and yet there is no harmed party within the joke which mm-hmm. is rare for a dirty joke yep which is, he says, every time I go to the gym, I'm shocked at how much bigger my penis is than every other man's at the changing room. In fairness, it is completely erect. <laughs> <laughs> I had,
1: and I would put that in the Pantheon with the famous Bob Saget joke. I had my mom's face tattooed on my ass because it was the only thing that would stop my dad from buttfucking me.
2: You 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 told that joke to my wife and I, and we laughed so hard. You I don't hit remember. your heads, clunked
1: heads, hard, hard. You guys really, clunked th- I was actually very worried about both of you.
2: In fact, when we repeated that joke a year later for someone else, we both laughed again so hard we clogged heads a second time. Two injuries It from was that like joke. the laughs but then the tears of pain yes. trickling and, through. And Ferguson confirmed for me what you said because you said that Bob doesn't tell that joke because he, lo- he the audience loves the joke. They laugh but then they hate him. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Ferguson said, yeah, there's a whole class of joke you can tell where you lose the audience once they're
1: upset. Well, there's so a ha- half the audience will laugh because half the audience has like a really, you know, like that kind of sense of humor. And the other half is confused because they're like i don't am i allowed i don't know it's like the, the jokes where people don't know how they're supposed to feel yeah. like people kind of need to know you know even if something crosses a line as long as that's part of the agreement of yeah. the, but when something just crosses a line in a way where people are like i don't know how I'm, I'm am i okay am i bad if i laugh at that you know then by that point you know and that's
2: an interesting cultural moment i know when y'all get into a room Shit gets dark fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you guys really push those limits with each other because yeah. that's the space you exist in. Well,
1: comedy is a little bit like <clears throat> like when you're a kid and you're wrestling with your cousin or a sibling or whatever and it's fun until it isn't. <laughs> it's like it's fun until right, right. someone's arm gets twisted and it's like, oh, fuck. And then it gets serious because it's like it's play, play, play until someone gets hurt. And so that's where it kind of can go sideways. But that's what's – that's the tightrope walk I think of some of it. So and.
2: that's really fascinating, right? Because you're, you're taking them right to the edge of safety. Yes. And and sometimes you get hurt. And so this is actually, I, I just did a different podcast. Sorry, I'm too timing you. God damn it. But one of the things I was saying on it was that I, I've come to believe that comedy and magic are the two most immediately rigorous forms of narrative storytelling Mm -hmm. because they have instant stakes. Mm -hmm. A lot of narrative storytelling has long-term stakes, but they're they're not immediate. But comedy and magic don't work unless you get the laugh or you get the surprise. Yeah. But – and I've always known that magicians hold their audience in this kind of very interesting, unsafe space, right? Like I'm pushing reality in front of you in a way that makes you feel a little strange. Mm -hmm. But it's okay. I'm holding you tight at this juncture. And you just helped me realize that comedians are also doing the same thing. We're going to traipse to the edge of acceptability to examine these concepts and what we really think about them in unique ways that will
1: challenge the way you think, hopefully. Yeah, and then also – but also when you – when for comedians who do dance right on the edge, a couple things can happen sometimes, which is sometimes jokes that are edgy – Culture kind of like evolves so far past them that they don't that they're very benign (laughs) that it's like, oh, that was considered edgy at one point. Right. But then the reverse can happen, which is that cultural attitudes pull back and then all of a sudden it's like, how could those people say that thing? You know, it's like, well at the time Well at the time, you know, like it just it it was a different it was different you know right. and so that, that th- those are the dangers that you that a comic has you know Terrifying. when they're when they're dancing around on on a, a high like that type of that type of comedy but also i don't think stand up was meant to be permanent like stand up t- i don't think stand up was ever really meant to be um for any other audience than the audience that came to see it in that one show because it is isn't you're forming an instant community right, right. So it's a moment It's a moment mm-hmm. And so when you put it on video or tape or, or album or whatever Which obviously all comedians do to help promote their stand-up And it does get the comedy out to a larger number of people But also there is something that is There's a layer of separation Where you weren't a part of the, that yeah. immediate community And so it's just a,
2: it's just a little bit different It's fine tr- My kids don't understand Steve Martin's old stand-up humor at all <laughs> right like it's to them it's like what alien universe could this be from and how did you ever think this was funny yes and the answer is it was just, it was so impressively radical at that point
1: so like <laughs> I, it's funny that you say him in particular because i mean you know, he was always my idol he was the reason i ever wanted to do stand up he's my number one in terms of like um, i didn't know that yeah and so i was watching <clears throat> one of his uh, early appearances on the tonight show last night from 1973 where <clears throat> 73 73 wow. it's before he yeah. blew up he had only ju- he was a writer he had just been starting to appear on some TV shows he was getting a little bit of traction but he was not Steve Martin yeah. the yeah. you know the SNL concert act so his hair was still kind of like almost you know really dark and <laughs> he did this bit called he did a bit about doing stand up for dogs and so <laughs> he cuz the thing was he was always like satirizing performance yeah which is just not something that people were really doing at the time. So he had four dogs in front of him on the Tonight Show stage. And he was like, no, if you're a human, you're not going to get this. If you have a pet, you're probably going to want to call him in right now. And you will see them laugh like they never laughed before. And, uh, you know, so he goes – he starts doing jokes for these four dogs. It's like, hey, uh, Fido and Rover are walking down the street, and one of them had a bowl of food, and the other one's like, this isn't fit for humans! And then no one laughs, and then the reverse camera cuts to a close-up of the dog's faces, who just aren't reacting, or who are looking confused, (laughs) and then everyone fucking loses it. And then so the dogs start getting up and walking around, and so he's playing with that, but it was one of the most experimental things that I've ever seen on a show where traditionally people just did really tight jokes, and... He uh, – the audience at first didn't know what to make of him. Yeah. And what bravery. It was so – it was such a risky, ballsy thing to do at that time.
2: When uh, – when, so I loved his book. Uh, yeah, Born, Born Standing Samuel. Up. Yeah. Uh, I read it. I, uh, My wife and I, during a, a long road trip around the Southwest, we read it to each other in the car. Yeah. And then we got the audiobook and listened to him read it. Yeah. And my only problem with him reading it is that he doesn't actually do his bits – he almost does. He almost does, but he doesn't go full hog, yeah. and I wanted him to.
1: I, I mean, which is funny because in the book, he sort of explains why. Like, it's, it's funny. He's sort of talking about why he doesn't do yep. that stuff anymore. So it's understandable that he wouldn't, but you still want him to. Well, it's a, it's a lovely
2: bit of, um, of recapitulation because there's not many people who achieved a real cultural icon status in a field. And then didn't talk about it for decades.
1: And also when you understand how deeply opposite they, you know, like how much of a character it was. Right. And how deeply shy and the social anxiety and the, you know, it's, it's such a... Yeah, the, I, I think when that book came out that's not I don't think that was really something a lot of comedians were necessarily talking a lot about or really open about I think we have books about 10 years old now mm-hmm. and so um, I mean like none of the big super comedians yeah, yeah. our generation of comedians that's all we fucking talk about <laughs> but back then you know like yeah. they didn't and so what? It was just a really, it was really interesting to sort of, to see, like, understand why he doesn't. Oh, and I loved the idea, the
2: the, the intellectual idea of that he was looking to expend, extend that space between the setup and the punchline to this long, thin thread of absurdity.
1: And also to make people laugh, but not, but put them in a position where they couldn't really understand why they were laughing. <laughs> so there was, al- it was almost like confuse humor or it's like I'm laughing and I don't know what I'm looking yeah. at you know yeah. yeah. And so it's it really was it, it like his his Tonight Show appearances because they get weirder and weirder and he does he does all these weird card tricks yeah, like these weird comedy card tricks with Johnny and even Johnny in 1973 seems amused by him but also like he doesn't quite know well and so so he worked at the magic store at Disneyland yeah. uh as a teenager
2: and a friend of mine is a wonderful magician who met Steve at a at a at a gathering and my friend is a master close-up magician and he was doing some close-up magic and Steve came over and he said um, do you mind if I have a go at the cards and my friend said I watched him grab the stack of cards and do a couple moves and that's all I needed to see to know that he's a f- Terrific magician
1: and a great juggler and a great banjo player Ugh, and a great comedian annoying. and it, it's, it, a, it, it's like everything. It really is. But it. Uh, oh, by the way, his li- his show with Martin Short was great. Was it? I got to see it live, but it's on <sighs> Netflix now, and it's it's really great. But I, you're kind of making me realize what it is that I think that kind of binds nerds together, which is an appreciation of craft. Mm-hmm. People appreciate that you have a skill where you can build literally almost anything. They would appreciate. The technical um, prowess of close-up magic, they would appreciate the technical uh, skill involved in bluegrass. Like, there's so many things that yeah. that make sense to me about how these things cross over. And I think Largo is the example of, like, it's the magnet for people who are obsessive about craft.
2: It's totally true. And it's actually, that's the story that I, that's a, it's kind of ultimately the story of each episode of Savage Builds, is I, one of the early titles in my head, which doesn't work for World War II reasons, was The Collaborator. <laughs> 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 because we, we exist in this a culture that is obsessed with the idea of a singular creator And I grew up with that myth I grew up yeah. with the myth of my dad being a singular creator And it's a total myth And I've been lucky enough to meet a couple of singular creators And they are, they
1: are absolutely rare Right, the rest oh of people us, who who survive without collaboration yeah. at all, like hermit Hermit. Or, craft. Uh, who
2: just generate unbelievable things just from themselves. Right, but the, most of most of all of humanity, we have to work with each other. Right, and I wanted to build a show in which I was bringing in different people to play with every week, and you got to see different types of collaboration, different things that I would learn from that collaboration, and also. Whenever I encounter somebody who's deeply obsessed with what they do, I get super excited about what I'm going to learn when they open that door and show me the inside. So
1: uh, when you really unpack it, Savage Builds is a show about chemistry. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because nice. you're, because everyone that comes in, you create a different thi- a different uh, molecule and yeah. a different formula. Well,
2: you know, you, when, you have a, when you have a thing that you do and you bring other people into it, You always have to do a bit of caretaking of them. They're coming into your house. Yeah. Um, There's something really, the the second time I did Craig Ferguson's show, he came up to Jamie and I and he goes, I hope that was okay. I hate doing any show that's not mine. (laughs) And I thought that's such a lovely gift to give because it's totally true. When you're on someone else's show, it's always like a little bit of, it's a little bit scary. And, you know, so bringing people into this show and putting them in an environment where we were actually going to be figuring stuff out on the fly while yep. cameras were rolling. And it didn't
1: always work out. But that makes me wonder about when, I mean, Mythbusters was quite the security blanket for a long time. You always knew you were going to go back to it each season. You mm-hmm. always knew. It's like, you yeah, it
2: became a juggernaut for you a You were a
1: juggernaut. And it was like, OK, we're set for a while. Mm-hmm. And then the show ends did you sort of feel? Did you feel relieved, or did you sort of feel like, uh, "Who am I? What am I going to do? What's my identity? How do, how do
2: I work again?" And and for mm-hmm. for how I navigated those first few months after the show ended, I have Paget Brewster to thank. Oh wow! Because I was uh, backstage at a thrilling adventure hour show at Largo. Yep. And Paget goes, "Oh, sweetie, your show is ending after how long? Thirteen years. Oh, sweetie, you're going to go crazy." <laughs> She was like, you're going to lose your – Because free- of Criminal mind. Minds. Yeah. She said, I did that show for six years and when it ended, like, I lost my mind. Just the, the stability of doing the same thing every day. Mm-hmm. And I was like, but I have a freelancer's brain. I've always been wondering what's next. And She was like, it's not going to matter. You just, you've been doing the same thing for so long. <laughs> the shift in your life is going to feel totally destabilizing. And, yeah, I mean, it, it was it was quite difficult. Um, I And I'm still figuring it out, right? That was – 14 years of my life, or we made the show for 40, 200-plus shooting days a year for 14 years. Jesus. Right? There just wasn't a stop. Uh, So I spent the last two years doing just stuff for Tested. Um, Savage Builds was back into that kind of production. We did six-day weeks, 12-hour days for four months, Mm -hmm. which was brutal. Um, I I really, I don't want the second season to have the same schedule. (laughs) I, I was in my 30s when we started making Mythbusters. Oh, my God. That's so crazy. Right so crazy um and so really part of what i'm what i'm considering is like no how do i want these days and weeks and months and years to kind of play themselves out right like uh mythbusters was a tremendous amount of work and it was a train i got on before i knew it was going right and then i just went with it but now i'm driving these trains and i still have all sorts of masters to serve and different things to balance But the question still remains for me as the creator and the the locus of this of, like, how do I want these days to go?
1: Okay, I don't want to do 12-hour days again because that's really hard on an entire crew of people. Yes, and it's hard on you too and it's hard emotionally and and also, you know, as we we start to get older, kind of having these existential thoughts of, uh, is this how I want to spend, like – the last you know hopefully 30 years of my life when i look back
2: you know we both know people who are driven to ridiculous degrees like i've heard stories about beyonce landing from a red eye and doing a two and a half hour complete concert rehearsal that she doesn't have to do at the at the full hundred percent she does it but you can't
1: argue with results though you can't you can't argue with results you absolutely can't that's that like when you look at the most successful people. Someone might get lucky once or twice. Right. But for the people who sustain success and stay at the top, it is people don't I – I don't think people really – for anyone who's like, I want to be like Beyonce, it's like, but do you? Right. Because do you – would you want to sacrifice as much of your life, your soul, yeah. <laughs> to have to be able to – um, to maintain that level of yeah. perfection, and it's real, and it's, a, it's
2: I, I love what they do. I love what she does, and I, you know, I watched that documentary on on cable of Bruce Springsteen recording Darkness at the Edge of Town. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw this. It's no. amazing. So this like twelve song album. They took two years and recorded over sixty songs. Some of them five and six times in all different genres to choose these twelve songs. 12, 14 hour days, the band talks about it openly as just this grueling slog. <laughs> and it's an amazing album. Yeah. And I watched that and I was like, that is not me. Nope. I want to go home at 5 30 or 6 o'clock that's and have dinner thing. and I, I mean, want to chill the thing. out.
1: It's like, do you, you, you know, when you're young, I think you're so hungry and you want to be, maybe not everyone, but I think a lot of people are like, I want to be the best. I want to be the biggest. I want to be the most. Whatever the superlative is. And then at a certain point, you're like, but. I don't know, like, wouldn't it be great to have fun? Well, and there's, there's like a quote from Spielberg about the
2: 70s where he's like, oh, it was great. We were all single and had no responsibilities and all of us just did nothing but work. When also there was Coke. right? Like, <laughs> just fuel the, the coal of the 1970s film industry. All aboard
1: the Coke train. No stops. Uh, and I think when you're young is exactly when, I mean, you the know. literal snowpiercer. <laughs> nice. You're just on a Coke Train that never, that just keeps going around the world. <laughs> I don't know. I never did that drug, so I just don't. I never, I was never a drug guy. No. Uh, so I don't, I don't know. But, I but, but
2: when you're young is when it's time to bust your ass those crazy hours.
1: Right. And, and do that.
2: And it is like, I, I don't know how I got on describe what I feel like is an apology for not working harder. Right. But it isn't, to me, that, bal- that life work balance is really important. And so actually, when Mythbusters first became a hit, when it first was clear this train was going for a while, um, as you know, when you when you have a successful show, your corp- you have a power with your corporate parent that you that you didn't before, and that power is weird because you could talk laterally to any you could talk to anyone within the hierarchy, mm-hmm. right? And so, what do you do with that power? Mm-hmm. Well, you don't you don't use it unless you really know what you want with it, right? And the only thing I did with it for years was just expand our shooting schedule. So we had by the end, I think, more than ten shooting days per episode which was such a luxury. Yeah. And it really did allow me and Jamie and most of our crew to go home every night at like six o'clock to keep regular hours because the alternative was, would be insane.
1: Normal like cable shows is, you know, even Walking Dead shoots an episode and like, Seven or eight days Right
2: And they're shooting These long days And
1: they've got two crews Back to back Overlapping their Everything has a cost And I think people When they think about What they want in life They don't ever do Like the spreadsheet Cost benefit analysis Of like What's it really going to cost To achieve this Time and energy What are the life costs We don't ever calculate The life costs And we just Flash forward to the result Of like and then I'm being carried out on everyone's shoulders, and they're toasting gold champagne. You know, I love the stories about Clint Eastwood
2: making like making his DPs work with. Like, you get two lights. You can have just two. That's it. <laughs> Done. Move on. Right? He he makes his crew shoot nine to five. Apparently, yeah. and, and like he's like, it's like you know, film is not worth ruining your life over. Yeah, I mean it. It because yeah. and I'm not denigrating people. Like I'm not denigrating the 14 hour days. No, but, of course you know, not. I, it
1: could be everyone, but everyone should just be aware that that is a choice and Mm -hmm. what are the costs of that choice and do you want what comes with that? Because you never you know, it it is always that sort of like Faustian clause of like, oh, you know... uh, I, I want to be – you know, I really – I want to be – I want to have millions of dollars and then like someone shoots your legs off in an accident and you're like, OK, now you have millions of dollars but it cost you something, <laughs> you know? Well, there's an old John Stewart
2: joke when the, the first guy who f- circumnavigated the globe in a plane landed somewhere in Africa. And John Stewart was telling about it on the Daily Show, and he goes, "He was joined when he landed by his wife and children, and he commented how how much his children had grown <laughs> since the last time he paid attention to them."
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing, you know. And it's like you know when, as Lydia and I are sort of talking about, like, well, you know, when when her kid's going to come into the picture, like, I don't want to be the I don't want to be a, the unavailable mm-hmm. dad who's so like, yeah. you know. Sorry, I can't talk now. Dad's uh, chasing his dreams. You know, it's like <laughs> dad, dad's running. He's not running away from you. He's chasing his dreams. Right. Those are two different things. <laughs> it, it looks like, like it looks way. like, it looks <laughs> like the same. You're still seeing the back of dad's head and <laughs> from the distance, but he's chasing his dreams. You know, and and I don't necessarily like. I want to figure out like what that balance is because it feels like any person. Who gets older, whether or not they have material success or not, they always kind of land at the same thing of like, eh, it's fine, but maybe I wish I had taken more time to have a birthday party or hang out with friends or talk to people or, you know, I can't take all this, you know, it's like, I can't, I, I, I can't take all of my movie props that I bought in auctions with me, right? No, I could be buried in Dark Helmet. I could be you buried. Could. I could be buried in my dark helmet. So maybe I'll do that. <laughs> but other than that,
2: it's like. Well, it also becomes it becomes harder to make friends when you're older. Yeah. Making adult friends is weirder because
1: you start to become very specific about the kinds of crazy you can overlap with. <laughs> yes, and also you know when you're young, you well at least when we were young, you'd talk to people on the phone. It feels weird for an adult to call another adult and be like, "Hey, what are you doing? Oh, like, like why, why are you so calling suspicious me?" Suspicious when people do that. <laughs> like, what, what do you want? <laughs> what do you want? <laughs> I was just calling to see how you're doing. And also, can you appear at a thing for my, you know, my kid's school is. It's so strange to
2: me. Well, I have a theory. It's all a
1: sales pitch at a certain point. It's
2: strange how much calling, cold calling someone is now an act of aggression. (laughs) It's really aggressive. You're like, why
1: are you? I'm just dropping that. I'm
2: not even going to. I just don't even know.
1: Hey, don't know. I don't know if you got my last message, but I was just uh, checking in. Why are you checking in? So I have a theory about why.
2: Uh, and I think it's all about the delay. I think it's about the what's called latency between what I say and what you hear. And it, when I was a kid, the latency was almost non-existent. The phones were all landlines, and the copper wire went right to my girlfriend's house. And when we were talking, we had effectively—I looked it up—something like seven milliseconds of latencies, a thousandths of a second. Oh, wow. So there's basically none. I I can hear the room she's in. She can hear mine. It's an intimate conversation. But when you called people overseas in the 70s and the 80s, it was always like about a quarter of a second, 250 millisecond delay. Mm -hmm. And it was, you joked about how hard it was to talk to someone in England because of that delay. Well, currently our phones have between 100 100 and 250 milliseconds of delay.
1: Oh, really? Yeah.
2: And that delay is part of the pros- post processing that happens from the sound signal that happens in your phone, and they've prioritized actually so they can prioritize call call quality, like the the the, the sound of my voice, or the latency. But doing both is you you have to make an, an you have to make a call. Got it. And they've prior phone companies up till now have prioritized the quality but not the latency. And I submit that the latency is what makes talking on the phone awful. And here's my example. Okay. You talk to your wife at the end of a long shooting day, and it's a rhythm. Hey, baby. Hey, sweetie. How are you? I'm good. How was your day? It was great. Um, Shall we meet at the thing for dinner? Yeah, I'll see you there. Love you. Bye. That's a rhythmic Normal relationship conversation. But try and have a fight with your partner <laughs> on a cell phone where you're like it, – it, 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 it. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No you. No you. I said no you. Right? You can't get to a rhythm because you can't actually interrupt or you can't actually respond in real time.
1: Well, that's why fucking conference calls are the worst. Oh, the when worst. six people, there's silence. Shoot. So anyway – okay, no, you go – Oh, no one said. Oh, no, I'm sorry. No, what you were going to say. Seventh No, I'll layer just say yep. oh, And then no one says anything. Okay, so should I? <laughs> okay, fine. You know, it's like you can't. We it's used, like an anti rhythm. Well,
2: at one point, oh, here's another thing we did with The Power when we were a hit show. We told Discovery, like, if you want a conference call, you've got to buy another day of production. <laughs> You just it's gotta, because it takes so much of our time to be in a specific location at a specific time, and
1: things rarely get solved on conference calls. No, they just you're just reading me the email you sent me yesterday. How many times do you say on a conference call? Okay, we'll just connect about this offline. Okay, well we could have just connected
2: about it you know? Seriously, most of so many conference calls are someone reading me the email they sent yesterday.
1: Yes, and it's and and you're and you don't you also don't know. The only way you know that someone's phone is dropped out is because you hear that, Bring, like, when they reconnect. <laughs> okay, what'd you
2: miss? <laughs> Hi, sorry. There there was this old um, comedy bit done for a Canadian advertising festival called Truth in Advertising. And it just the opening joke of it was my favorite, which is a bunch of ad execs sitting around a conference table and the phone in the middle. And you hear the guy on that phone. And he goes... Uh, I thought the best approach was to repeat everything you said in the first
1: call and shuffle the words around a bit. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that checks out. <laughs> Cause conference calls I think are just designed to make it seem like something's happening. Yeah. And the more people on a conference call make it, give us the impression that it's more important and therefore, you know, more value. So I've heard, I just
2: heard a really interesting thing from my friend, Anil Dash of glitch. Um, about video conference calls and it turns out there's this new paradigm apparently among some people who are starting to understand that if you're going that it's bad to have some people at a conference table and others dialing in on video because the people in the room tend to prioritize the others that are in the meat space sure and so at glitch apparently they now try and be rigorous about if there's going to be people dialing in from video everyone dials in from video
1: Oh, just so that everyone's it levels on levels the, the playing field. Got it. Yeah, I mean, I don't. The thing that I don't like about FaceTime or video calling is because I feel like. You're always looking at yourself. You are so always doing. because it's it's so unsettling to feel like someone's looking at you and you're not looking at them because you're looking at the camera. Like if there was a way to make the screen the lens somehow. Well, at some that point with, when we, you know, I just read Fall
2: Neil Neil Stevenson's new book. Okay, and he he posits several futures up to like about 150 years in the future. I think 100 years in the future, give or take. Um, but, about twenty years in the future is where we no longer have laptops or phones everything 's in our glasses
1: well, yeah, because it, because it mach- the, the interface of the machine hasn 't really changed that no. much since the typewriter, yeah, and so I feel like people behave like machines because the machines are forcing us to interface like machines oh, and so it 's very depersonalizing yeah, yeah. so it 's very easy to. You know, to be for people to be shitty to each other online because they're it's a machine, right. And they're leaned over the machine, and that, that we're almost kind of enslaved by machine. We're, like, there is already kind of a Terminator esque m- m- machine dominance over humanity because we're forced to right. interface like indentured servants, essentially. It's so dark and, and awesome. And so, like, I, I feel like the future is going to have to be more augmented stuff for things that are more. Um, just woven into... Like, humans are going to have to take back yeah. the interface and make them more human and less machine-oriented. I, I totally agree. And so that is folding them into glasses, contacts, whatever. Augmented
2: reality is the thing I'm most excited about. And I've just started... I got the Oculus Quest. I've actually been playing games for the first time in my life. Yeah. I'm super into Superhot. Do you know about this no. game? No. <gasps> Superhot is a VR game in which... um. So you'll be zapped into a level, mm-hmm. and you're standing in a room, a white room, and there's some low-res red figures around you. Yep. And none of them are moving. And there's a gun in front of you. <laughs> Shit. And as you reach – and these, these figures, let's say they all have guns and they're all down. As you reach for the gun, they all start to move. And what you realize is time doesn't move until you do. Oh, that's fucked up. So that you reach for the gun and one of them pulls a trigger and a bullet's coming towards you. So you stop moving and the bullet stops. <sighs> so you move your head out of the way of the bullet. And then this other bullet's coming from over here. So you still have to and get to your gun. and you're really, It's literally like the Matrix. You are literally dodging bullets while grabbing guns and shooting people. But every time you shoot them, you're moving time. God, you know, I, so I imp- really,
1: I really want to do VR, but I just need the frame rate to to get better, so I don't want to throw up after seven minutes. I have
2: one of the weakest stomachs known, and the Oculus Quest is not bothering me. Now I do get bothered by specific things like being moved in game, mm-hmm. like when you're on a conveyor belt or you're being zapped here. That I don't like, and I like Super Hot because it's got none of that. You are always
1: kind of standing in place. What do you think the future is going to smell like? <laughs> 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 we know the past is stinky. Is the future going to be stinky? Is it going to smell industrial? Is it going to smell cleaner? Ooh. Is it going to smell? Wow. You know, like are are we going to are we going to infuse? Are are we going to have? Uh, Some type of augmented sense reality, like a sensory reality where we can create the types of odors that we want to experience. You
2: know, that's still such a weird area. Neil Stevenson, who I I was just talking about his book. I know him and he was talking about that apparently the way we smell um, operates at a quantum level. Like the the sensors in our nose Mm -hmm. are actually – operating at a quantum level to detect sense mm-hmm. that this almost might be impossible to
1: replicate mechanically
2: yeah which is totally
1: bizarre to me it is, that, it, that it, i mean like we obviously don't have the technology now, but maybe right. as quantum computing uh, it becomes be. becomes more of a thing but i
2: mean we're Look, I only hope that the future does not smell like
1: gasoline. <laughs> How's that? My I'd, goals are small. <laughs> I'd say within 50 years there's a good chance it won't. <laughs> so I think we're probably okay about this. I think Time. we're probably okay about that. But I also think like, it does trip me out to think that whatever I am smelling, I just assume that there's a shared agreement on what that smell is. Right. But I don't know what you sm- – I can't ever possibly know. Like we're basically imprisoned by our own. Yeah, by by our own yeah. perception.
2: How do we know our red is red, etc.? Hey man,
1: oh, I'm fr- <laughs> we're <laughs> back. You fresh ever really in your looked at your hand? <laughs> hey man, like how do I know that this that this table is like what you see as a table? Maybe what you see looks like an art man. Fucking crazy, you know, like all that shit.
2: Well, so that's actually fall. Neil Stevenson's book fall is really amazing specifically because it posits um, the first uploaded consciousness oh, into wow. a digital frame. And I don't want to spoil it because he take, he goes in a really cool direction with
1: okay. it. Okay. Yeah. All right. It's really worth reading. I'm totally in. I'm also uh, excited about your show. I mean, of course, I follow you on Instagram, so I see you posting all the shit that you're building. And I've also been in your – I'm sure this is a different lab, but I've been in your – I've been in your garage, your hobby garage. You've been in the cave. I've been in the cave. Yeah,
2: you've been in the cave.
1: I've been in the cave a few times. Mm-hmm. And I love that you have basically just been on a path it seems like since you since you started in theater of whittling down more and more and more what is the essence of what you're passionate about. <laughs> <Yeah>. You know, <laughs> and with mythbusters there are a lot of these certainly like Big ideas and a lot of big scientific principles and a lot of testing of things. And now it's just, you know, what can I make? How do I craft this thing? Well, and I also commensurate with that is telling that story
2: over and over and over again, because I want everyone to experience the joy I have in making things from scratch. And I want to – like so uh, in May, I came out with a book called Every Tool's a Hammer, Life is What You Make It. And it's about me and my history of making. It's about the philosophy of how I set up a shop. But it's also a permission slip to the audience, to the reader, to do that thing that they want to try. So I remember Will Wheaton telling me about being your roommate in college the night you said, I think I'm going to go try this open mic thing. (laughs) And it's – Amazing that, right, there's a witness to that moment in your life yeah. and that you guys share that incredible history together. And there's also a moment of inflection at that moment where he might have said, you fucking idiot. That's a stupid thing to do. Don't right. go near that. And that might have really mattered at that moment Absolutely. and changed the whole course of your life. Absolutely. But you had somebody next to you who was like, do it.
1: Well, Will and- was also a guy that would was constantly <laughs> trying new things. I mean, I lived with him through his uh- – you know, he wanted to DJ raves for a while. so And he also had the money at the time. Right. Like, to, so he bought this incredible DJ setup and he was had turntables in his room, <laughs> you know. And, it, like, he went through this incredible, like, computer effects phase and he moved to Kansas for a while and worked with the video toaster people. And so he was always a guy who was constantly, like, trying to yeah. see, like... Because that's what you do when you're young. You just try shit on. Oh, does hey, exactly. this work? How does this feel, you know? Yeah. And so, I, yes, I was very I was very happy and very lucky with that. But with you in particular... You are I, I, I think your a, a your mass appeal for something that on paper might be like, this is too niche and it's not. <laughs> because you in 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 practical application, you're really kind of the nexus of art and science. There's like a real art to your science and a and almost a science to the art as well. well. And that's that is a very unique thing in our world. And I think that's what makes
2: it so appealing to people. Well, and that's the other story that I keep wanting to tell, which is that I don't think there's any real difference between art and science. And I'm, I, I submit that when we say things are an art and science, we actually are literally placing them at opposite ends of a spectrum. Yeah. We're saying they're this, but they're also this. Yeah. But – what I came to understand and what I think every kind of geeky science nerd understands in their soul is that these are both just methods that we use for telling stories about how to understand the world. Right. And one is arguably more emotionally based and one is arguably more rigorous, but they deeply
1: vent into each other's I territory. think they both cross over. I don't know if you ever saw bring it back to Steve Martin, his play Picasso with La Pina One of my favorite theatrical experiences I've ever so had. So Einstein meets Picasso yeah. and they're both given like 30 seconds to write something down and... Uh, you know, um, Einstein writes a bunch of numbers and then uh, Picasso makes a painting, and they're trying to determine who's the, is the best, I guess and Picasso looks at Einstein's and goes, "That's just a formula and Einstein goes, "So is that and it's like, "Oh my God, that's fucking amazing yes. you know it's like that kind of that idea of that you know uh, that there is so much crossover, and those two things are so interconnected, but I never thought about it in terms of storytelling expression in that way. I was,
2: doing, I was doing Neil deGrasse Tyson's podcast a couple of weeks ago in New York and his right hand Chuck is a stand-up comedian and we were talking about scientific experimentation and I was like, Chuck, what are you doing when you're workshopping material at a club? You're iterating Ideas. You're iterating concepts and seeing which ones work and which ones don't. That's that's, that's a scientific
1: approach to comedy. Yeah, it's a scientific method. You have a hypothesis. I wonder if this joke works. Yes. Uh, Airplane bathrooms are weird. (laughs) I wonder if they are weird. Let me go test this to see if the science of the audience supports this. No, they do not. Yes, they do. Here's what I need to do to... So every comedian is a working scientist. (laughs) In a way, Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a good way to make us feel more important <laughs> when we're telling dick and butt jokes on stage. I just want everyone – like
2: when, when you take your point of view and you are lucky enough to have a, a career in which you can take that point of view and make something with it that exists that people will experience and it may change their minds or it may give them a new viewpoint – Every time you take your point of view and make something, whether it's a poem or a dress or a table, um, you are actually being part of your culture. Mm -hmm. And that's a power. That's a genuine, real power. Um, When you're surfing your stuff on your phone, you are are consuming. But when you make something, you're contributing.
1: And expressing, yes. And
2: expressing. And to me, humans are at our best when we are doing the latter. I am a consumer just like anybody else. I'm as addicted to this thing as anybody and yet i like my goal is that every kid uh, gets to understand the power of doing that of of exploring their own point of view to see in what, to seeing what they could make and contribute to their culture
1: well consumerism is in and of itself is a cul-de-sac because like, cuz if you don't if you don't re-express something then you're just basically caught in a loop and you're not you're, right. you're not necessarily yeah. part of the rest of you know, the, the human experience, you're just eating. Yeah. You know, like yeah. You're, your brain is just eating.
2: We we talked in the, I worked in the toy industry for a while, and we talked about toys at that point. It was the late 90s, and toys were just coming online that were much smarter, much better electronics that, quote, played themselves. Oh, interesting. So this whole class of kids' toys that you like bought, put batteries in, pushed a button, and it would dance for you. Right. Right. For- and that, that and you just that,
1: looked at there's it. There's no play going on. Yeah. You're just staring at a thing. While Unless it does you the can thing. create a story with it, you know? Right. Maybe there's a way to create a story with that. Well, that's what I think is that's
2: what I think is happening now with the maker movement. I think that electronics like when I was a kid, electronics were a black box.
1: You didn't mess with those. You didn't adjust those. Or you'd go to Radio Shack and you'd fucking build a you'd put a wire in a wet potato and that was your fucking right. battery. You but know? now you're like,
2: oh, I can buy $15. I can buy a desktop computer for fifteen dollars. That's on a card, mm-hmm. and I can turn it into a robot that can navigate a room by
1: itself. Well, now we're all going, Now we're getting back into like get, having skills that hopefully would you know where we're where we get handsy. And I think people are are thirsty for that. They again. are, and we need it. So
2: a friend of mine counsels, uh, 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 he counsels homeless youth and teaches them how to cook. Uh, to give them a life skill Mm -hmm. and a job and a potentially employable skill. And one of the things he says more and more lately is kids are showing up and they literally barely know how to hold a pencil Mm -hmm. because it's all phone-based. Now, I don't mean to shit on Gen Y or millennials or anything because uh, I am a firm believer. Well, first of all, there's going back to Pompeii, there's graffiti on the wall in Pompeii that complains
1: about kids these days. Well, there's also graffiti about like – uh there's also like graffiti about blowjobs. Oh really? Oh my god. There's such pornographic graffiti in Pompeii where it's like ones that are you know, where a guy is like, you know, um, I've sworn off women forever, it's men's bums for me from here on it's like it's like there's like super it's just like gas right. station right. bathroom graffiti. We never change, right? No, we've never changed.
2: But uh, the other reason I'm not shitting on millennials is because we haven't really left them a very good planet. (laughs) That's true. So, so apologies. Yeah, sorry about that, guys. Sorry about that.
1: (laughs) Gen Y, our bad. Figure it out. Yeah, they'll sort of figure it out. We're just kicking the ball down the field. I always kick. I always kind of have that hope. You know, I'm going to get that last minute. You know, I'm going to roll a seven it, it, <laughs> when I'm like 70 years old, like, ah, good. They finally cured uh, cholesterol. Thanks, everybody. You <laughs> know, about, right. in 25 years, they'll have a thing for that, you know? Exactly. like I don't know. Maybe maybe they will. I kind of want to – as we're wrapping this up, I yeah. would love to talk to you about the ph- – really quickly about, as well as a reference to your book, the philosophy of setting up your workstation because even if someone is not a builder – Everyone has some sort of a workspace or a workstation. Mm -hmm. And so what is the philosophy to establish a working environment to optimize um, productivity, a sense of safety, feeling good, you know, like all that stuff?
2: It all comes down to self-awareness. It all comes down to watching yourself. And, I mean, for me, one of the most key moments in my life, in my emotional life as a human, was the point at which I realized that I could – React in the moment to things that were happening. Um, or I could step back one level, and there are multiple levels, but I could step back one level and watch myself and see why I'm having these reactions to these things and unpack those reactions. There's a, there's a Buddhist phrase that between stimulus and response is all of our free will. Mm-hmm. We, we, we have a choice at that moment from the stimulus before we respond and yell at our mom or that's also
1: a very stoic idea as well. Stoic? How so? Stoicism. The idea that we control our reactions. We control right. how we perceive things, creating space in between those two points. And we might not feel like a level of control over those reactions. But the more, I, I'm a big believer in therapy. I've been in
2: therapy my whole life. I come from a family. I'm married to a therapist. Yeah. Uh, and to me, that introspection is really important part of being being a person. And it's also part of how I learned to set up my shop. As I'm working, as I'm moving my hands, I'm noticing the things that I like and the things that I don't like. Oh, I don't like walking across the shop every time I need to get an Allen wrench and I need a lot of them for this tool. So let me buy another set of Allen wrenches that just live at this tool mm-hmm. because every time I get up and walk, I'm breaking my stride and I like a certain flow state. Mm-hmm. And we all have different places we want that flow state. Um, but I think sometimes like Jamie Heineman, does not prioritize that type of flow state because he has a different one Mm -hmm. while he's walking all the way across the shop to the only box that has hammers in it. He's actually thinking about his build. He's using that time. Me. I'm just like, I'm losing momentum and we all have different ways in which we build momentum for the work that we do. Uh, So ultimately the, the the, the top philosophy that I talk about in the book is about watching yourself and noting your patterns. Uh, And then after that, starting to accommodate the space to, to handle those patterns, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and, it's also about watching each of our micro reactions to those stimuli. Right. And it's never over. I'm never done doing my, my shop. Isn't done. I, probably about 20% of what I do in my shop is simple organization. I'm like, it's time to tackle that shelf. Right. I mean, we all have a drawer in our kitchen. That we haven't seen the bottom of in a decade. Right? <laughs> There's
1: always something to tackle. Ah, ball of twine. I'll just put that in that drawer. Like it's just the There's just that the wristband catch-all. from nineteen eighty nine. But it allows you to get it out of your way and sort it. Yes. I mean, you're not really sorting it, you're just sort of like dealing with it later. Yeah. And then that fucking ball of twine survives like ten moves. <laughs> Two divorces until one day Marie Kondo tells you to throw it away. Exactly. Yes. Um so
2: yeah, it's an, it's always an ongoing process. Um, I so in order to make Savage builds, I took apart my shop actually and put a huge amount of it into the production. Uh, and I'm just now we wrapped in April. Where are we? Is June? Yeah, Um, I'm just now getting my shop kind of back together. It was physically back together a few days after we wrapped shooting. But the flow of the shop and how it's laid out is only just starting to come back online for me because I I didn't realize how much damage I was doing by taking it apart.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah, of course. But also in doing that, it also probably gave you a, a very molecular level viewpoint of... Uh, it, it's essentially like taking apart a toaster. It, Your shop is an or, is like a machine or yes, an organism. And right. you take it apart and you get to see wh- how it's put together so that you understand it a little yeah, better.
2: Yeah. That definitely happened. And I also – I'm not doing it again.
1: <laughs> I realize <laughs> – Like I took apart – I took away my ability
2: to self-soothe for four months. Oh, wow. I'm working yeah. full time. But on Sunday, I really would love to go to my shop and maybe make a box for my house or something. Yep. I couldn't put a box together for five
1: months because – None of my tools were there. Oh, that's so funny. Your work-life balance is like <laughs> it's so confusing because they all look like each they other. They all look exactly like no, each other. No, and this is
2: the thing I've really come to realize. So even this is I do stuff for te- the stuff I do for tested is is also storytelling, but a radically different kind of storytelling than I do on television. Yeah, right? different types of narratives, different use cases, uh, and I'm now realizing there's this whole third area which is me just building crap for myself while no one's watching or filming. Mm-hmm. And taking apart my shop and taking out my ability to do that one thing has, has, again, just like taking apart a toaster, made me realize the machine that is me needs a certain amount of time and breathing of just making crap
1: for myself and not filming it. Well, what's your white whale, though? Like, what's your... I've been trying to tackle this goddamn thing for... So remember, for a long time, it was Deckard's gun. Yes. And that took yeah. him many years, and you yeah. finally did it. Is there another one?
2: I want to I want to wear a real space suit in space. <laughs> You're going to go to or do you think you you would go if you I, could? I would go. I I'm staying in shape. I'm telling every human I meet at at SpaceX and at Blue Origin and at NASA, I want to be a civilian ambassador to space. I told his Jeff Bezos like 3 weeks ago. <laughs> uh You know, I'm hoping I do get to experience that. Uh, In the meantime, I have built a a collection of almost a dozen hyper-accurate replicas of spacesuits throughout America's spacesuit development. Um, I've loaned four of my spacesuits to the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art for an exhibition they're doing. I know, it's super exciting. And I'm continually replacing parts of some of my favorite spacesuits with more and more accurate parts.
1: Boy, you know, you, like... You should be a guy that can make one thing that could go in as many different types of museums as possible. This spacesuit could go in a science museum. It could go in an art museum. It oh, could right, go in this right. kind of museum. You should see, like, how many, almost like a minesweeper, like, how many different museums could you oh, grab so at once with one, using yeah, one yeah. thing.
2: Well, so I also realized as I've been archiving my costume collection, I have over 80 costumes I've built you know, going to Comic-Con and other places like that. And I realized that a key part of the costumes, I, I have pictures of every part of every costume, where I got it, who I bought it from, often what I paid for it, whether I think it's 100% accurate or whether I think I should replace it at some point. But I'm, I've am i also, once I got the request from SF MOMA, I realized, oh, well, the, that part has to go as part of the story of that costume now. Mm-hmm. So now each costume file is going to have to include what con I wore it at, what that was like, What those pictures show and then that narrative and then what what exhibit it was part of. Did I have it behind me at a talk? I went and spoke at Bezos Mars conference last year and I gave one of the keynote talks and I had five of my spacesuits behind me. (laughs) And it was so awesome to go to this conference where everyone was so much smarter than me. And yet have my, my, what I called my emotional support costumes with me. (laughs) Because it made me feel at home no matter where I was, as long as one of my spacesuits was nearby.
1: Well, yeah, because at least, you know, even if they were sitting there going, I'm smarter than that guy. But he did build those things.
2: Yeah, they, I want one of those. Oh, yeah. and I have one of those. Okay, yeah. so cool. We could...
1: Yeah, that's your currency. Yeah, that, that's the that, currency. Those are your cool points currency. <laughs> exactly. Well, so Savage Builds is Friday nights on Discovery, and I know it at emi- 10 o'clock, I think. And then yep. I think it reruns on Science Channel as It does,
2: well. on Wednesdays, also at 10 p.m. after BattleBots. You
1: know what I want to do before we wrap this out is yeah. I just want to pull up a couple of uh, filthy Pompeii graffiti <laughs> <laughs> i <laughs> awesome. Just to sort of give you a sense.
2: Okay, while you of... do that, I'm going to try and do the. This is one of the hardest mathematical puzzles in the world: is how to efficiently unwrap a goddamn caramel.
1: Oh yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it is like protein folding. Must you need be easier. A where it's like a reverse hay baler, where yeah. you just throw it in and it, un, it I, unpacks. You know, I'm feeling like a crustless sandwich to lose a lot in the process. I might need to make a spa- a slicer. Then that- okay, so here we go. all right this is uh, this is. Uh, I found this on a website, uh, Pompeiana.org, which um, uh, it says each inscription begins with a reference to where it was found, region, insula, door number. The second number is the reference to the publication. Okay, <laughs> but this, this is translated okay. graffiti found in Pompeii. Uh, this was at a bar, brothel. Uh, Weep, you girls! My penis has given you up. Now it penetrates men's behinds. Goodbye, wondrous femininity. <laughs> So poetic. It probably looked better in the original, uh, in the original Latin you too. Just,
2: so now, just imagine: there's a person who is like, "I've now come to this conclusion, and I'm gonna,
1: and I need to say this. I got to let the world know." Well, that was their Facebook, <laughs> basically. <laughs> that, was, that was their; those were their status updates. Graffiti is proto status. Did updates. Did he then
2: go have an amphora of ale with a mate and said, "Dude, I just posted."
1: <laughs> How many likes? How many likes did I get? How many likes? Uh, all right. Let's see. This was outside of a tavern. Restitutus says, "Restituta, take off your tunic, please, and show us your hairy privates." <laughs> says a lot about grooming, <laughs> Pompeii
2: uh, this I wouldn't have wanted to, In defense I wouldn't have wanted To shave with anything They probably
1: had At that point Probably not right, a like good Like some Bowie knife Trying to trim your No but they probably Had like waxing techniques strip. You know It's oh, like might hot have had- Like just basically Just like rip all your hair Off with hot mud Right <laughs> it was, I hadn't considered <laughs> be that Be a fun we're, You know We're going
2: to release This special version Of Beetle We've been getting From <laughs> Africa That will chew off All the hair on your Yeah I
1: mean I don't know Maybe they <laughs> maybe They didn't have Brazilians so Maybe they called it did you get a Napoleonic Like you just like Rip <laughs> off all the hair from stem to stern. Uh, okay, so this is outside the house of Catharist bef- below a drawing of a man with a large nose. And it says, Amplicatus, I know that Icarus is buggering you. Salvius wrote this. So he's wow. calling out uh, Icarus, who it sounds like is flying a little too close to the sun. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and to, then, uh, to whose son? To whose <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Points <laughs> that got you points. If this was at midnight, that got you points. <laughs> and then he, and then of course he tags it with his own name. Salvius wrote this, just in case anyone. Oh <laughs> Right? Okay. Right? He's not quoting someone else. He's quoting. He's, yeah, he's paraphrasing qu- himself. He's yeah. He's quoting himself. Uh, Says so uh, Oh, and then this is just like a a schmaltzy poem. Um, hello. Oh well, you know what? I'll read it. I'll say. I'll see how this plays. <laughs> this is outside of a bar. The story of Successus, Severus, and Iris is played out uh, on the walls of a bar. Severus says... Successus, a weaver, loves the innkeeper's slave girl named Iris. She, however, does not love him. Still, he begs her to have pity on him. His rival wrote this. Oh, shit's getting real. So then Successus answers (gasps) in the thread. No! Successus says, Envious one, why do you get in the way? Submit to a handsomer man and one who is being treated very wrongly and good looking. And then Severus comes back. I have spoken. I have written all there is to say. You love Iris, but she does not love you. And then it ends. Who knows? Wow. Did one of them unsubscribe? the most Did fas- they kill each other? Yeah. The most fascinating part of
2: that to me is that a man explaining that he's good looking is clearly lying, even from 2,000 years away. <laughs> right? Like The same rules apply. I'll bet if you looked at enough graffiti, you could find an example of Godwin's
1: Law. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, <laughs> of course. Well, who would be? Is it Nier- worse than Nero? Right. Yeah. This guy's <laughs> worse than Nero over here. It's <laughs> worse than Nero. Fucking Nero. Uh, and then you uh, just end on uh, right outside the bar of uh, ba- the bar of uh, Actitis. Actitis. Uh, just to the right of the door, it said, "I screwed the barmaid." We have not evolved. <laughs> At all, not in even one years No,
2: none. That's actually, it's both refreshing and appalling at the same time. <laughs> so, well, so I think the takeaway here is actually that if you were zapped back in time, I don't think it would take you more than a couple of days to build up a strong ten minutes of material. Oh, absolutely!
1: That you could actually perform there. Yeah. And get some real laughs. Absolutely. And also, uh, because we have a much, because we're, we're just more programmed for social media, we would fucking kill it in the graffiti game
0: <laughs> back there.
1: Oh, oh my God. Oh my God. My graffiti hot takes <laughs> on the news of Herculaneum? Holy shit. I'd be a fucking legend. Dude, you got to go to the corner of Elm and Pearl Street. The only problem is you only have, an, you only have as many followers are as in that town. That's true. That's a problem. Unless well, that's why you got to get to Rome because Shit. you got to go to the big leagues. I need to be like Italian Banksy, and I need to just fucking go and drop my drop my hot takes on all the buildings, or like Space Invader. You know, that so- would
2: be the the most the I, I love the idea of a time travel movie that is totally trivial. It's completely trivial. So Chris Chris goes back in time, and all of a sudden we start noticing weird crap on pump and the Pompeii Museum.
1: No, it wouldn't be weird crap. I'd just be drawing dicks on everything.
2: Right. I mean, come on, what's okay. Just a dick and clay. Um, I I I, uh, I I was at a conference recently where I had dinner with four mayors. Okay, of different small cities on the East Coast, and these are cities small enough where being mayor is in fact not a full time job. Got it. I love this idea, right? They have their own their own companies. Anyway, I, I was saying, what do mayors get together and 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 like bellyache about? Like, ah, oh, you know, what what's the universal thing about? And they talk about people complaining about potholes. <laughs> And I, then I remember that I came across this story and none of them had heard this about a guy who figured out how to fix potholes in his hometown, which was he spray painted uh, cock and balls on every
1: pothole and they were fixed within days. That's genius. Right? <laughs> That's incredible. Yep. That's using the d- drawing a dick on thing for who would have thought it could be used for good. Right. It turns out it can have significant effects for good. I feel very enriched. <laughs> I feel a lot better. I feel more important. I think we've done some good work here today. Because when I was on Snapchat, all I did was draw dicks on our cat. <laughs> right. but literally all I did was just draw dicks on our cat. I,
2: I will tell you, there was at some point I on Mythbusters, often I would warm up for a camera take by telling jokes to my crew mm-hmm. or telling them horrible stories. And at one point, I found a picture of a of a sleeping baby with a big dick drawn on its oh, face. Oh no! What's <laughs> the best? Was when I showed it to my cameraman. No, I showed it to my sound guy, Maddie, and Maddie just went, "Hey, rules are rules." <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, it's like it's technically not illegal, no. but it's. I mean, I, listen, no one. No one is gonna not love when people draw eyebrows on a baby. Like those are the best. Totally. But totally. that's the almost like, as good as Mr. Chinigan when you turn your That right there's the comedy thing of people like I how do I react exactly. to this? <laughs> exactly. I wanna laugh because I have a fucked up sense of humor, but is that okay? Yeah, exactly. I mean is this wrong? <laughs> I, don't... I need permission. You need permission. <laughs> so when you show some people you're like, it is okay. Yes, exactly. Well, I'm so glad you were here. Oh my sandwiched. god, this
2: was so much fun, and it's been too long.
1: I miss your face. I miss your hugs, <laughs> uh, and uh, and I really am excited about your new show. And I'm so glad things. Please tell Julie I said hello. I will, and uh, and I hope to see you soon. And I hope yes, you know, I hope you uh, still do uh, performing whenever you can squeeze it in. I,
2: you know, it's been a little while. I mean, I've been doing this book tour, but it, I have been feeling the desire to hit the road again because uh, I really enjoy that that interaction with the audience is like nothing
1: else. Yeah, your live shows, I would imagine, were like when you guys were touring. Myth Busters and fun. stuff yeah. yeah So you'll be able To do that again I I, I, I I, think 2020 Is when I'm going To start to work On that again Oh good 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 yeah. Good, good, good. Anything else you want to plug or anything else you want to say? Oh, my
2: goodness. Um, you know, uh, Savage Builds has six more episodes to air. The last one is a doozy. We actually put laser tag in some of Peter Jackson's World War One planes and enjoyed some dogfights. Holy shit. Like actual flying the planes? I wasn't doing the flying, I was the gunner in a British RE 8. But speaking of time machines, we built a time machine. Oh we, my God. I experienced what a dogfight could be like uh, 100 years ago. Yeah, it, it was a pretty amazing experience. Uh, And now I'm taking the summer to relax a bit, to recharge. Recharge. Uh, We're actually going to take a nice trip to Europe in the fall, Uh, and then hopefully in uh, later
1: fall, i will be starting up on season two of Savage Builds. And uh, just uh, go draw some dicks on things. I (laughs) draw some, (laughs) but only for good. Yeah, only for good. (laughs) This is as you're drawing a dick on pump. This is for humanity. (laughs) You're welcome.
0: Pompeii. Exactly. You're welcome. It's good to see you. (laughs) All right, the end. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com podcast and use code WONDERY to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details.
1: That was the Eddie Tinti podcast number 1008. It's Word Salad Wrap. Oh my God, so much to talk about. After Adam Savage, just the idea of making stuff and pursuing stuff that you're, you're interested in. Listen, you probably, and maybe not, but maybe there's a good chance you spend a lot of time worrying about things <laughs> that probably won't happen to you. Uh, the stress, a lot of the stress that you're worried about usually, thankfully, doesn't manifest itself. Sometimes things do, but you know, what do you want to stress about it Twice. You know, you stress about it before it happens, and then if it happens, you stress about it again. Uh, I know it's easier said than done. But, you know, what if you took some of those uh, moments where you were stressed or otherwise needed distraction and learned a skill, something that you were excited about? I know I've talked about this before, but um, I've... uh, I took up Italian and started taking piano lessons in January and started taking guitar lessons because I've been doing a lot of guitar stuff in my act and, uh, the, you know, the studying music theory and learning, learning actual skills with my hands because listen, I love video games, but I logged over 200 hours on Zelda. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, and, and I know I'm going to play a lot when Link's Awakening comes out, so I'm trying to cram in some skill sets. But, you know, what's so great about learning is that um, I think a lot of anxiety can come from the fact when your brain doesn't necessarily have something to kind of grab onto and focus on, so you just sort of turn inward and start devouring yourself. Sort of like if you hadn't eaten, and your stomach just starts consuming itself for protein, um, uh, and 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 leaching protein off of your, your vital organs. <laughs> I sort of feel like lear- learning a new skill might be a fun way because you don't... Listen, your 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 idea doesn't have to be so result oriented where, you know, a lot of times people think about undertaking piano or, or, any, or art or sculpting or whatever it is and you go, oh, I don't know, it's going to be so much work. You know, there's so many people who are better than I am. Don't worry about the result. You know, you don't have to do it. Like I started taking piano and guitar and Italian without a goal. The goal was just the process of learning itself, you know, and when you are learning... You're distracted. And not only are you distracted, but you're you're distracted with growth, which is the best kind of distraction, you know? It's like, video games are great, you know, if you engage in substances to distract yourself, that's your, uh, obviously, prerogative as well. I don't recommend it, but that's my, that's my thing, not yours, uh, necessarily. Or just, like, mindlessly watching television or mindlessly doing anything. So what if you filled the distraction times with... With, uh, with growth uh, experiences instead of just distraction experiences. Because then you're actually learning something. You're doing something constructive with your time. And it has the additive effect of making you feel better about yourself because you are essentially investing in yourself. When you're learning a new thing, you are subconsciously saying, I am worth this. I am worth learning a new thing. And then you get all the little brain chemical rewards of actually having accomplished something. And it takes your life in a whole different direction. So even if it's like, ah, I'm feeling anxious now. I'm feeling stressed. I just need to distract myself for 15 minutes. I'm going to go fuck around on the piano or learn something or just do guitar scales. I'm using those examples because those are the things that I'm doing. You Whatever it is that you want to do, if it's crafting, needlepoint, um, topiary, I don't know, whatever it is, even just spending little bits of time on it, because sometimes I think we talk ourselves out of it because we think it has to be this big production, but it doesn't. You can just do it for 10 or 15 minutes at a time, and guess what? Over the course of one month, three months, six months, a year, it's cumulative. You will look back and go, holy fuck, I actually logged 100 hours by just stealing little bits of time here and there. You know, sometimes we make things more of a thing and then it actually needs to be. It's like how we've always told people, oh, if, if they want to start stand up or writing or whatever, there's no big production. No one fires a gun at a starting line and then you start, you just start, you just do it. So just steal those little bits of time. Sometimes I'll just go sit down at the piano for literally 10 or 15 minutes and uh, it, it's enough to be able to check the box for that period of time. You know, my trainer, Tom, always says like checking the box when you go into the gym, if you're doing fitness. You know, it doesn't have to always be a big production. Sometimes it's just stretching, doing some push-ups, doing a little bit of cardio and then for that day you were able to check the box. Do you have 15 minutes? Did you have 20 minutes? Did you have even 10 minutes? Whatever, you still showed yourself that you were worthy of that investment in time. And if that's all you have, that's what you have for that day. You still made the effort. But isn't it better than like, oh, I don't know. I don't feel like it. Then you kind of beat yourself up because you didn't do anything. And then it's easy to sort of stay in that pattern. Oh, I never do anything. You know, it's sort of forcing yourself to come out of those bad negative self-talk patterns. And when you're learning a new skill, it's, you know, and although it can be frustrating, <laughs> at least you're trying, you know. And as long as you don't put so much pressure on yourself, you don't, you don't have to be perfect. There is no perfection. So you don't, you don't have to be the best sculptor, piano player, singer in the world. You, you can just be doing it for the fun of learning and for the process of it. And sometimes you're going to suck and sometimes you're really going to connect. That's what's so fascinating about learning piano, guitar, and Italian all at the same time is some days Especially with Italian, you, I just have the words. I, they're there. I know it. It's just kind of ingrained. You know, it just is a part of me. Um, and some days it's not. I trip over words. I forget stuff, and that's just how it is. But you, but you need to go through those times because that's where you build the muscle. You need to have bad workouts in the gym. Where you don't feel as good and it feels like a slog because that's where you build muscle, <laughs> that's where you build strength—not just physical, but your emotional strength of pushing through things. Same with piano and guitar. Some days my hands are working great and it just seems so effortless, and other days it is effortful. But I push through those and I go, you know, this is part of the process. I don't care. I don't. I'm not. I don't have to be the best. I'm just. I just want to be. So that's my, uh, you know, springboarding off the Adam Savage Maker concept. Um, use your distraction time wisely you know if you're gonna distract yourself if if you're not in a position where you want to deal with your feelings or try to really focus on that at least if you're going to distract yourself distract yourself with something constructive that you can get emotional and actual real world tangible results out of afterwards that will then uh, reward you uh, for being able to say like hey Maybe I'm not a piece of crap. Maybe I'm actually worth something, because you are, and I believe in you, and I thank you for listening, and I appreciate you, and I will see you soon in your ears. ID T scanning Complete. Enjoy your burrito.
0: Hey, it's Guy Raz here, the host of How
2: I Built This, a podcast that gives you a front row seat to how some of the biggest products were built